Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Richmond. Those of you that are visiting, we're glad to have you with us this morning. Looks like we got a full house. We've got to add a couple of chairs. Uh, we had the, the 8.30 service. Um, has more room. It is growing. Uh, we, yeah, it, it has more room and it is growing. And we have a, we have a good group coming to the 8.30 service now. But uh, good to see all of you here. I do like uh, worshiping with the fullness of everybody. You like that, Gary? You know, the 8.30 is nice, but there's a little more uh, in, in the... Um, 1045. Uh, you know, I also wanted to uh, say um, for the first quarter, you guys know Tuan, our worship leader, he's sitting way back there uh, in the uh, beautiful purple shirt there. What, uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, Tuan's sitting in the back. Tuan is taking the first quarter off to rest his voice, uh, which has had uh, and uh, some significant things. His father's going through quite a bit, so he's going to be taking that time for the first quarter to minister there and just to take some time of rest. And you heard Gary up here. Gary recently learned to play guitar. And uh, now, uh, <laughs> um, thankfully, uh, you know, Gary's a veteran of, of playing. When I came in this morning, Gary was playing something that I thought I was transported to Mexico. He was doing something on his guitar, and it sounded like, uh, I told him, I said, we should take you to Guatemala. The, the, the restaurant's there. They'll love you. But... Um, <laughs> But uh, between Gary and Jackson, and I don't know where Jackson is, if he's in here, he's out there. Um, you over there? There you are. Uh, Jackson will continue. Jackson and Gary will kind of tag team and take turns leading, leading worship, and Jackson's very gifted on both keyboard and guitar, and Gary uh, just has a lot of experience leading worship. And so we're blessed that uh, while Tawan takes this time of rest and just sits here and enjoys with you guys that we've got uh, folks on the team that can kind of uh, man the worship and and when we say man, we mean it because we got no ladies up here lately. Uh, so uh, we 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 lost a couple ladies to moving. Like Lisa had to move to uh, to Raleigh uh, with Dave, and then we uh, Claire had to move back to where she was from. And so uh, we have Nettie and uh, sometimes Gwen. Uh, so we have a few. So if you have a legitimate, don't let other people let you and tell you if you have a legitimate lady of a good singing voice. You're more than welcome to talk to. Talk to Tuan or talk to Gary or talk to Jackson, and, and we would love to uh, validate that you have that. Uh, I'm not part of that, but they are, and, and we, we, we would definitely like more feminine voices as well to go along with the, the, the men. We're kind of like the Old Testament priest did all the singing, so you know that's the way it is lately, but we're good with it, and God's been blessing. So, uh, But good to have all of you here this morning. Uh, here on the 15th of January, we're halfway through the first month. So uh, we've made it to the halfway point, at least the first month, and it felt like January this morning, didn't it? Um, uh, just to remind you, we'll have uh, prayer every Wednesday in this month. Uh, so we've been fasting on those days, just bathing the year in prayer. We do this every year, so this is not new. Bathing the uh, beginning of the year in prayer, and we've seen God uh, bless it, and it's been fruitful throughout the year when we kind of start the year in prayer and uh, not hearing from me. I do, I, do, I do a little devotion each time, but as far as not... A teaching night per se. I'll do a uh, setting the table of devotion that we go into time prayer. And if you're able to fast that day, some of you have been fasting, heard some good things that you're fasting, social media or TV or Netflix or whatever uh, Lord leads, but you can kind of do that with us during these 21 days as well, Wednesday the 4th all the way through uh, that last Wednesday in uh, January. So to remind you of that, 
And um, next uh, Sunday, I will step out of the book of John. Uh, we have a baptism next Sunday. We, as you know, we do the baptism in the service as part of the 1045 service, not part of the 830 service. They have to either come to this service or watch it online later in the afternoon. But um, we'll have the baptism here next uh, Sunday as part of the service. I'll step out of the book of John. I don't want to be constricted with the time that is necessary to go through Jesus on the cross, which we'll do the following Sunday. So next Sunday, I'll do a little message uh, topical out of uh, the book of Acts about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And I've called it the, water, uh, the word, the witness, and the water. And I hope that it will also encourage you to share your faith and be open to people that are ready to hear the gospel uh, here in 2023. So we'll do that next Sunday. And then the Sunday after, we'll be back in John and the trial and triumph of the cross. Uh, Jesus paid it all. So I didn't want that Sunday to have anything else but just us to focus on that. I told the first service, I said, even the message I had, you know, the, the text we'll be going through today, um, I would prefer just me, Lord knows, I would much prefer to teach about things like the Ethiopian eunuch and certain psalms. Uh, it is not fun for me to teach about the cross and the suffering of Jesus. I'm glad he suffered once, and I'm glad he's never going to suffer again. I've never seen a crucifixion, don't ever hope to see one in my lifetime, but it's not easy to preach and teach about it, but it's in the Bible, and God says, not only do I want you to know about it, don't ever forget it, but we have a cross here that we remember the cross, and so we'll be focusing on that on the 29th uh, to close out this month. With that, we continue to pray for revival. You guys have been praying for our country? Do you think our country needs prayer? Do you think we need prayer? Yeah, of course, we, in this room, we're, we're, we're more messed up than people think in this room. We've got more issues than uh, God knows them all, and, and even the ones we don't even know, he knows. But uh, we are praying for a work of repentance in the body of Christ, revival in the church, revival in our nation, people turning from their sins. And, uh, and my wife gave me this little book from Selwyn Hughes. I mentioned I've been reading it, and just, just encouraged, again, Revival comes from God. We can pray for it. We can hope for it, but only God can send it. And uh, there's nothing, you know, Peter did not bring revival in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit brought revival. God could have used Peter. He could have used any one of the apostles. Matter of fact, they all stood up and taught to some degree, but Peter was the one mentioned. But revival is an outpouring supernatural from God. And um, in the Welsh revivals, uh, the, the, the Welsh Revival, some of the things, that amazing things took place, um, like miners were mining coal and all of a sudden were struck with conviction and dropped their pickaxes to their knees and started crying out for God to have mercy on them with no one preaching to them or anything. It's just, that's what revival, it's, it's, it's a heaven-sent thing. And so uh, we're praying that God opens eyes and opens ears. And our country is really, really so blinded. We don't even know truth from error anymore. We are just like Nineveh. We don't know the right hand from the left hand. We're a rebellious country, very arrogant towards God. And so, uh, and people, you know, they know who God's name is, but they really don't serve and follow the Lord. But we've been saved and we've been called to follow Jesus and also intercede. Amen? God sent Jonah to Nineveh. He didn't really want to go either, right? God had um, Abraham intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. 
and he has us intercede for our country. Amen? Amen. And not only our country, as we've been, if you're visiting, we've been praying for one country every uh, week, and today we're praying for the nation of Poland, which has been uh, heavily impacted by what's going on in Ukraine and, and refugees that are coming over into Poland and near and dear to my heart. My wife's maiden name is Chalowinski, so uh, she's got some Polish uh, lineage there. And so, but that's not why I picked it today. I mean, it, uh, um, it's just a different country every week, and so we're praying for the nation of Poland today. So if you're visiting, we've been getting on our knees. We've been praying for revival for over a decade. We've been getting on our knees ever since the pandemic started, and uh, the pandemic in some ways is not over. There's still people uh, that are sick and in hospitals and, and a lot of things still remain with both COVID and other, other things. The flu is, of course, back uh, in a big way this year as well. But, uh, but aside from all that, we continue to pray for revival because our nation's biggest issue is not actual physical illness. It's a spiritual malaise and a spiritual sickness that our country has, and, and we need uh, the Lord. So we've been humbling ourselves just getting on our knees. If you're able to get on your knees where you're at, go for it. Uh, if you're not able to do that, you have bad knees, your doctor says, don't ever even think about it. That just sit right there and pray with us. Or if you're not comfortable, that's fine. Just pray with us about 45 seconds of silence, and then we will uh, get into God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, as we just sang just a few minutes ago, you are merciful and mighty and holy. And Lord, we bow before you because you're holy. We bow at the mercy seat. You told Moses to meet you at the mercy seat. Lord, we come boldly, not because of anything we've done, but because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. We come to your throne room of grace, to your mercy seat. Uh, Lord, not just to seek your mercy for our nation, but also for ourselves. Lord, even in this room, Lord, we know we've failed you so many times this week alone. Perhaps even today, Lord, we just ask that you would wash us and cleanse us. You'd refresh us. You'd renew us. Lord, if we've left our first love, we would return to you. If we're not seeking you first, we would seek you first. Lord, you'd restore to us, uh, every person in this room, the joy of our salvation. Lord, we pray for a refreshing that can only come from the Holy Spirit. We pray for an outpouring of the conviction of sin in our country. Uh, Lord, uh, the knowledge and the understanding of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. We pray that you would open the eyes of the blind. Lord, open the ears of those that are not even hearing the gospel. Lord, turn people from their idols and their sexual sins and their addictions and, Lord, their, um, Lord just anger and violence and all the things that we see and just gossip and slander and so many things that we see prevalent in our country. And Lord, many of us were in these same things and you've saved us and we're still far from perfect. So we pray that you continue to grow us by your grace. But Lord, we pray for an outpouring of repentance in the churches in this country and awaken asleep and, uh, and just stagnant uh, church of this nation. Lord, we pray that you'd save uh, our neighbors and our co-workers and our our family members and uh, friends and people we've known over the years that, that still don't think they need Jesus. 
Lord, we pray that they would come to the knowledge of the truth and come to a place of repentance, Lord, that they would decide to follow you. Lord, we pray for the nation of Poland. We pray, Lord, that they also would see a revival and a work of repentance. We thank you for the Calvary chapels that are in Poland. We thank you for the, the body of Christ, the remnant that is serving you and, and a bright light in Poland. We pray that you would use them to bring many people in Poland and even refugees coming over from Ukraine to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And lastly, Lord, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world in communist nations and Muslim nations and parts of the Hindu uh, areas of India. Lord, we pray that you would deliver and rescue and heal and restore our persecuted brothers and sisters and give them an increase of faith and strength. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, turn with me, if you can, in your Bibles to John chapter 19. One thing I wanted to mention that I forgot to mention, uh, speaking of India, I just mentioned in, uh, in that prayer, uh, I was talking to Jonathan Krause just after Christmas or right around Christmas on the phone, and we had a little conversation. Some of you that sponsor a child with Love Never Fails International uh, needed to let you know, Jonathan wanted me to let you know that they had to, for some very severe reasons, and there was some persecution, and there was some oppression, and, and some other issues, they had to close one particular uh, center in India, and they were able to have kids put in other places, but you may be getting a different child to sponsor because some of these things in some of the countries around the world are outside of our control. They have more kids than they can even handle anyway, but you will, in case your child was impacted and they had to move out of there temporarily and hopefully they go back, uh, you may be uh, informed, you may have already been informed, but if, if you didn't get that information, it may happen. So just kind of uh, forewarn you. Uh, but uh, he said they promised to have a child for each person that is sponsoring one. So we have one, for example. So I just wanted to kind of share that. And he wanted me to share that with you guys and to pray for them uh, because there's a lot of oppression and attacks that they weren't even dealing with. Um, well, they were in 2022, but back to 2021, they were not. So uh, just keep them in prayer. Uh, John chapter 19, uh, we'll pick up where we left off. We're going to cover through verses six, 1 through 16, but I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4 to kind of start us off uh, this morning. John 19, starting in verse 1, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you once again, humbled that we can even name your name. Jesus, you're sitting high upon your throne, and you're looking down at this service, and you're looking down at services taking place right now in India, in South Korea, in the Congo, in South Africa, in Australia, in Brazil, in Mexico, in Argentina, Lord, in the Pacific Islands. <clears throat> you see every service that's taking place. You see the ones that are honoring you, and you see the ones that are not honoring you. And Lord, we pray that this service would honor you. We pray that we would come with soft hearts, expectant hearts, but Lord, not only be hearers, but doers 
of your word. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to each person, those that are watching online as well, that you would speak to them that which they need, that which I need. Lord, I pray for your anointing, your help, your strength, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Long before Jesus came into the presence of Pilate, years before Jesus had begun his public ministry at the age of 30, and in fact, before Jesus even entered the world, even before the foundation of the world, Jesus had already fully committed to the will of the Father. Amen? His decision was with the Father to die for the sins of humanity. And it was in full agreement. The Father and the Son are one. Their agreement was one. Their decision was one. And the scriptures, the types, and the foreshadows, all were fulfilled in the predetermined mission and surrender of Jesus. Pilate, on the other hand, finds himself suddenly in a valley of decision. Most of Pilate's life, he'd never heard of Jesus. But as Jesus' ministry grew, the animosity of the Jewish leaders grew against him. And eventually, they devise a plan, you guys are aware of this, to capture Jesus, to pronounce him as guilty, and to bring him to Pilate to fulfill their end goal of seeing Jesus crucified, eliminated, and in their futile minds, because they didn't know Jesus would rise from the dead three days later, silence him once and for all. That was their plan. Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Jewish leaders, they had been planning and plotting for quite some time. And all their scheming now lands in Pilate's lap. The most important accusation in the history of the world has been leveled against Jesus, and Pilate has a decision to make. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, Two Decisions, One King. The decision of Jesus was never in doubt. Him and the Father had decided long before Pilate ever existed that Jesus would come, that he would be the sacrifice. But Pilate, he's wrestling with his decision. He knows there's little to no chance that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the 71 leaders, are going to change their minds. But Pilate seems to hope if he can buy some time, he can find a solution to his dilemma. As I mentioned last week, Pilate was not a kind and benevolent leader. That would only apply to the life and ministry of Jesus. Normally, Pilate was cold. Pilate was calculated. Pilate was heartless. Philo of Alexandria, the ancient a Jewish scholar and philosopher recorded this about Jesus up on the screen, about his reputation and his vile character, his corruption, his acts of insolence, his rapine, his habit of insulting people, his cruelty, his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned. You think our leaders are bad. And his never-ending gratuitous and grievous inhumanity. But it's clear that Pilate, who operated throughout his life with no visible conscience 
or any qualms with ex executing the innocent or the guilty or anyone he thought was a threat and in ruthless fashion. Yet here, dealing with the accusations against Jesus, he's conflicted. And he wants to remove himself from this pending decision or at least come up with some way to get Jesus released, whichever comes first. It's the Apostle John, who was the eyewitness, who went to every place Jesus went and was witnessing all of this taking place. Remember, John was even able to go into Caiaphas' house, into Annas' house. And John focuses on the dialogue and the interaction of Jesus and Pilate more than any of the other three gospel writers. But it's Luke, the physician, who records what I refer to as an intermission, this transfer of Jesus over to Herod on what to do with Jesus. And this more than likely takes place between verses 38 and 39 of chapter 18 or between uh, verses 18 and 19. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Just take a left-hand turn. And why don't you pray with me one more time? I believe God wants to speak in a mighty way. How about you? Amen. Lord, we just pray again the ministry of your spirit, the help of your spirit. Teach us what you want us to see here today. Draw us closer to you. Remove any distraction in this room, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were Galilean. As soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him. And he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, and he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate and Herod Antipas, this Herod's name was, his full name was Herod Antipas, they each ruled a subsection of what was once one unified territory under Herod the Great. You guys remember him? Herod the Great was in power when Jesus was born. He killed all the male babies. That's why Jesus, the angel, told him to go down to Egypt. But after the death of Herod the Great, he left in his will that his territory should be divided into four sections, four tetrarchs, four governors, four regions. And three of them would go to his sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. And then Herod's sister, Salome, she got a smaller area in pink on the map. I didn't make it pink because she's a lady. That, that's the way the map already was, so just so you know. I have all girls in my house, so I'm very cool with pink, but... Um, <laughs> 
But this division of the land that Herod ruled over, Herod reported directly to Caesar Augustus, Herod the Great. He reported to Caesar Augustus in Rome. But when he died and he left in his will that this is how the land was set up, Caesar had to approve it. So this had to go up to Rome. All three of the sons had to sail to Rome. Salome, they all had to sail there and await Caesar's decision. Tetrarch, again, means governor of a fourth. By the time of Jesus' trial, by the time we get to where Jesus is standing before Pilate, Archelaus, who was the oldest son of Herod, Herod the Great, he had long been deposed, and he was sent to live in Gaul, which is modern-day France, southern France. And that was in the 10th year of his reign. This was 27 to 30 years before Jesus stands before Pilate. So that after, um, so Archelaus had the, the biggest territory, and then he's deposed and sent to France. And then after he's sent to France, which is called Gaul in those days, it becomes under direct Romans ruling as opposed to offspring of Herod. Now, all the offspring of Herod, they also report to Rome, but it would be the difference of having, let's say, every, every governor in Texas was native to Texas, and they were all um, Native Americans, and then when they all were gone, then you sent somebody from New York to take over. But they always reported to Washington, that kind of thing. So... Um, Non-Herodian Roman governors then took over the rule of Judea, which is why Pilate, and not one of Herod's sons, is ruling in Judea by the time Jesus is there. Herod Antipas, who's one of Herod's two surviving sons, they were still ruling as tetrarchs. So Philip was one of his sons. He ruled up here. And then Herod Antipas ruled in the purple section they are actually divided. Two purple sections, that Herod Antipas, um, that was his territory. And Herod Antipas, he originally tried to convince Caesar, when he went to Rome and tried to convince Caesar um, that he should have the entire kingdom, just like his dad did. He's like, my brothers shouldn't get anything. Caesar listened to his argument and promptly rejected it and gave it exactly the way Herod had written it in the will. And he gave Herod Antipas the role of Tetrarch and gave him exactly what Herod the Great had proposed in the outline of his will. But you can see why Herod Antipas, now Pilate is now a Roman who's taken over the territory that used to belong to his dad and he believes should belong to him because he thought he should have the whole territory. Caesar didn't agree anyway. So you can see how close they were. Pilate ruled here from Caesarea and Herod ruled here from Tiberias. And if you get to go to Israel with us, perhaps in 2024, those two cities aren't that far apart. Um, it's a short bus ride from one to the other. But they were bitter rivals, according to uh, Luke's gospel. But just like Pilate, Herod sees no fault in Jesus. Herod examined Jesus, and he couldn't find any fault in Jesus. He was Galilean, Jesus was Galilean, and Herod oversaw the Galilean jur jurisdiction. And he was hopeful, Pilate uh, was hopeful, that Herod would rule and make a ruling and take the ruling out of Pilate's hands. And Herod's like, look, 
if, if I rule over Galilee, which he did, and Tiberius is in Galilee, right on the Sea of Galilee, and if he makes a ruling, then Pilate is off the hook as to having to make any decision at all. But that's not what happened. Herod has Jesus there. He finds no fault in him. But while Herod has Jesus there in his own court, and Herod is, by the way, in Jerusalem for the Passover, just as Pilate would come, they would come there only during that time, then they'd go back to their normal headquarters. But Herod wants Jesus to perform a miracle for him. This, by the way, is the same Herod, Herod Antipas, who Jesus is standing before in, in Luke 23. Herod is the same one who had already executed by beheading John the Baptist. The forerunner to Jesus, Jesus' cousin. And that came about, if you might recall, Herod was being entertained, and turns out that the girl dancing for him you know, he's so pleased by it that he tells her, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. She goes and asks the mother, what would you like me to do? And she asks for John the Baptist's head, and Herod's like, okay. Herod actually had been listening to John teach and preach. He was familiar <coughs> with the gospel, but never yielded to it. Instead, he murdered John the Baptist. He murdered the forerunner. So, Herod couldn't get Jesus to entertain him. He, Jesus wouldn't perform a miracle. He wouldn't even speak to Herod. He'd he remain silent. He remained um, as a lamb led to the slaughter. As it says in Isaiah 53, he, re he remained silent. He would not speak. But if Herod couldn't get Jesus to entertain him, he decides that he will entertain himself by mocking Jesus. So his soldiers, they begin to beat Jesus hit him with their fists, slap him, mock him. And then the soldiers take a beautiful purple robe and they go get this beautiful robe and they put it on Jesus. And it's not a sign of respect. It's just mocking him like he's some kind of trivial, unimportant person, just mocking him like, yeah, you're really a king. While they beat him and slap him. And Herod entertains all of this, is entertained by it. And I believe that Pilate's soldiers take a cue from Herod's soldiers because they're peers of one another. The Roman soldiers with Herod, the Roman soldiers with Pilate. And Jesus is sent back, and we pick it up back in verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorn and put it on his head, and they put on him a robe. They did not put on him a robe. They put the robe back on him that, that Herod's soldiers had originally put on him. And what I believe takes place here, um, Jesus is returned to Pilate. Let's see which verse I have up there real quick. Jesus is returned to Pilate. And once he's returned to Pilate, Pilate's soldiers kind of decide to one-up Herod's soldiers. And they say, hey, if Herod's soldiers put a robe on him of purple, he needs a crown. So they go out and they find these thick thorns and they fashion a crown and they jam it into his skull to go along with the robe that Herod's soldiers had put on him. Herod and Pilate became friends that very day. Neither of them could find fault in Jesus. 
But what they agreed on is that it was better for them to overlook Jesus' innocence and make his life expendable if it met their political goals and kept the status quo in place. And that they bonded over. Before that, the Bible says, they were not friends at all. They were rivals, bitter rivals. Then this whole situation with Jesus, they both agreed he's innocent, but his death is convenient. Nonetheless, their friendship no doubt grew later in the day. At this point, they probably a feast later in the afternoon that they would get together. But at this point, Pilate is still the only one that has a decision to make. Jesus' decision was firm. He had come down to lay his life as a lamb. Pilate, having received Jesus back from Herod, reasons that, uh, well, if he seriously and severely punishes and humiliates Jesus, perhaps Caiaphas and the leaders will be satisfied. So it says right there at the beginning, so he took Jesus and scourged him. This is after he gets him back from Herod. William Barclay said this about scourging. It literally tore a man's back into strips. Few remained conscious throughout the ordeal. Some died and many went raving mad. Most people would never survive a scourging. And the Roman soldiers, then they took, after the scourging, they drove that crown into his head. They strike him. They beat him. They put the robe back on his torn up back as if to say, this is how irrelevant this man really is as a king, mocking him as a king. Surely the people, you know, Pilate's thinking, surely the people would know at this point that Jesus has no real power that he's not really a king, but he's just an, an image of ridicule and mocking. And that Caiaphas, you know, Pilate's hoping that Caiaphas can see that he's humiliated Jesus enough and tortured him enough that he's no credible threat to Caiaphas, no credible threat to Jerusalem, no credible threat to Rome. That's the mindset. Look, we, we removed any issue of Jesus rising to power. Verse 4, we didn't read verse, uh, well, we did read verse 4. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. So Pilate brings Jesus back out. Remember, they wouldn't step into the praetorium. I believe that the praetorium had a large enough viewing. They could stand, this is how they were, very legally. They would stand just outside the line, and they could talk to Pilate and see what Jesus was doing. Doing, but then Pilate would also come all the way outside the walkway and talk directly to them at times, and here he does again. So he brings Jesus back outside the praetorium to them, stating clearly once again, as he's already stated before, he finds no fault in Jesus. As I referenced in Luke, he's already told them just before the scourging, if you read farther than we read in Luke chapter 23, you read farther down, it says that Herod found no fault in Jesus. So he has already told them, I didn't find fault in him, neither did Herod. He actually says those exact words, neither did Herod. In verse 5, then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the 
man. It seems to me that in verse 5, Pilate is trying to walk two lines at the same time, which is really hard to do, by the way. He's saying, behold the man, in kind of a mockery of what they've made of Jesus. But I don't think that's the only thing Pilate's saying. He's not just saying, behold the man, you know, crown of thorns, bleeding, purple robe that's just a joke to the soldiers and supposed to be a joke to everybody else. But Pilate's walking two lines. I believe when he says, behold the man, he on one hand wants them to know, hey, I've humiliated him, he's not relevant, he's insignificant. But the other part of him, he's saying, behold the man, he really is impressed with Jesus. Literally has a deep respect that is on the inside, and I believe Caiaphas hears both. I believe Caiaphas says, I know you're mocking him because that's what you have to do. But I also can sense, this is just my own thought on this, I, I, I think Caiaphas sees that Pilate now has some measure of respect for Jesus even though he's humiliated and tortured him. All of this, even saying, behold the man, saying we ha I, I find no guilt in him, how does that uh, impact the chief priest, verse 6, therefore when the chief priest and officers saw him, yeah, they behold him, they hear that Pilate finds no guilt in him, and they say, crucify him, crucify him. It only further infuriates them that Pilate has any level of respect for Jesus, notwithstanding he has done all of this weakening of him to kind of placate them, but in spite of placating them with the literal torture of Jesus, Caiaphas and leaders don't care if Jesus is a threat or not. They want him gone. They want him not just gone, they want him crucified, specifically nailed to a Roman cross. That's what they say. They don't say stone him, stone him. They don't say hang him, hang him. They say crucify him. They want the most severe form of suffering. They want cruelty. They want death and the most humiliating way possible. That's what they're asking for. Now, earlier, Pilate had said to them, remember when he didn't find fault at, at the outset, he said, you judge him according to your own law. And we talked about the fact that technically they didn't have the right to judge him for a death sentence, but Roman leaders often overlooked and allowed the Jewish leaders, including Caiaphas, to stone people on numerous occasions, and they knew that. They were holding the... Normally, they would, uh, they would override the technicality. Now they're holding to the technicality. Does that sound like politicians or what? <laughs> like, since you get a politician, you're like, now all of a sudden you care about truth? You haven't cared about truth for 10 years. I'm not allowed to say this unless it's under oath. Really? You spill everything to the Washington Post or the New York Times, all of a sudden now. But that's the way it's always been. By the way, not all Paul, there's some good ones out there. I'm just simply saying that this kind of doublespeak. But they're infuriated. They want him crucified. But Pilate had said, look, you judge him by your own law. But here he doesn't say that. He doesn't say you judge him by your own law. The rest of verse 6, he says, he doesn't say judge him by your own law. Pilate says, after they say crucify him, uh, the end of verse 6, Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him. I find no fault in him. Here, he's saying, if you want him crucified so badly, go do it yourself. And I believe this wasn't just a 
Stay, he's meaning it. He already told them, judge him by your own law. Go, Pilate would have given them the wood and the nails. But they don't want to do the job. They want to force Pilate into doing it and saying, this is what Rome did. Remember we talked about that. Both sides want the other side to own this. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. Here again. We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Now, they don't really talk too much here uh, about um, that it has to be crucifixion. They just say, we have a law, and he ought to die. And they say specifically because he made himself to be the Son of God. They've spoken at times of their own law. At other times, they've gone over to the impact to Rome's law and what, what, um, what the threat to Rome was, like Jesus violating and what that made-up thing about him perverting the nation and not having people pay taxes. So sometimes they've referred to Rome's laws. Sometimes they've referred to the Mosaic law. And here they're spe speaking of the Mosaic law. But this is another appeal on their part that Jesus must, no questions asked, Pilate, he must be put to death. And the reason is, they say it's a capital offense. And once again, they don't have the authority to kill him, but blasphemy, calling himself to be the son of God, is why he should be put to death according to their law. But Pilate, you have to do it because we don't have that authority. And Pilate could also infer that if Jesus really is claiming to be the son of the Hebrew living God, that this could also cause a religious uproar, and this could be the very problem of the whole reason he's in Jerusalem if all of a sudden another person is saying that they are the son of God and he's not the son of God, there could be an uproar of thousands of people. So Pilate can infer all angles of their argument. Verse 8, Therefore when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. This precise accusation. Now, Pilate had heard them use the word blasphemy. He had heard them say, he's broken our laws. They had heard, he had heard them say, he, he has committed offenses that merit death. But I believe this, this particular, they got more granular with the definition, and I believe the granular definition that they now give him, I believe, is new to his ears. He now understands. Pilate was not... Herod was much more familiar with the Jewish worship of God. Remember, he spent time with John the Baptist. He had John the Baptist come to his court and listen to him. Plus, all the Herods were connected to the fact that Herod the Great built the temple, and they were very connected to the worship, even though they themselves you know, were very worldly, godless men. They still would honor the feast, and that's why the Herod's sons would come, because Herod helped build the temple and make it magnificent. All that was a, was a present to the Jews. They were very familiar with the practice of faith that would take place among the Jewish people. Pilate was, was familiar with it, but not as familiar with it as Herod would be. And I believe this is new to his ears, that now he understands when they say blasphemy, they're saying that he's claiming to be the Son of God. That's kind of new to him. He just knew that he 
All right, he, he's done a bunch of things against your law, but now he knows specifically this man that I've been talking to is claiming to be the son of God. Now, even if Pilate doesn't personally believe in God, and it's not any, it's pretty clear that he doesn't believe in God at this point. Remember, he says, what is truth? He does understand that the Jews believed in a God who created everything, the sun, the moon, the stars, every person. Whether he agreed with that, he knew that that was their belief, that they believed in a God who created the entire universe and everything in it, including him. And by the way, we see this often in our own lives, talking to people. You can say you don't believe in something and still wonder if you're right, right? I've met people who say, I don't believe in hell. Well, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> I don't believe that God created the universe. I believe it just, a bang happened. What if I'm wrong? What if God created the universe and it wasn't just a bang, that nothing didn't create something? I don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. But what if I'm wrong? I don't believe I need to repent. What if I'm wrong about that? I don't believe there's any such thing as sin until they get robbed. I guess there is sin. When, when I'm violated, there's sin. When everyone else is violated, it's not sin. It's, a, it's just anyone's decision. Do whatever makes you feel good. Well, he felt good to murder, right? So people can say they don't believe something, but still wonder if they're right. Pilate can say, I don't believe you're the Son of God, but still wonder, but what if you are? And by the way, I can almost guarantee, it says, John writes, remember this is John writing this, therefore when Pilate heard this saying, he was the more afraid. I can guarantee you Pilate didn't go up to anybody and say, I'm afraid. I can guarantee he didn't walk out to Caiaphas and tell them, I'm now afraid. I can guarantee he didn't say to his servants or his soldiers, I'm now afraid. How does John know he's afraid? Two ways. One, he saw Pilate's demeanor. Two, the Holy Spirit told him he's afraid. That's how. Pilate didn't tell anyone he was afraid. You, as a good Roman leader, you shielded your fear that people would not be able to see it. But somehow John could see it, and the Holy Spirit let him see it. It was happening on the inside. He was churning on the inside. The fear was about, what if Jesus is who they just said he is? Or they said he says he is? Verse 9, Pilate is churning on the inside. He goes back into the praetorium. And he says to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Jesus told him earlier that his kingdom was not from here, but that he was rightly a king. The Romans believed in false gods. They believed in false goddesses like Apollo, Jupiter, Diana. So Pilate might be thinking, was Jesus a god, lowercase god? Was he a god from, this, from outside of this world like a Jupiter, like an Apollo's? Is he really the almighty God of the Hebrews, that the Hebrews say, no, there's only one God, and that's why they have a temple with no image in it. And if there really is this true and living God that the Hebrews follow, the Israelites follow, does he have a son? And if he does have a son, is this really his son? 
Pilate's wondering these things. Now, Pilate, he's already guilty of torturing the Son of God, just scourging Jesus to near death for most people. He's already guilty of torturing the Son of God. He's going to need to get... By the way, God would forgive him for that. Amen? Paul murdered people. I mean, so he could be forgiven. But right now, he is guilty. He's the one that gave the scourging orders just out of convenience, just out of to change their mind. If it even worked, he didn't even know if it would work. But he was willing to give it a try at Jesus' expense. Jesus, when he says, where are you from? In verse 9, Jesus remained silent. Jesus gave him no answer, just as he did with uh, Herod. Verse 10, then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? I wouldn't want to speak to anyone after they sh shredded my back. I don't know about you. Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Pilate turns to Jesus, who's now, Jesus is now in a horrible, horrible physical condition. His skull in excruciating pain, his back in excruciating pain. And Pilate's trying to help Jesus understand that, hey, I have the, whole, I have the sole, of power to, sole authority and power over your life. And Jesus is thinking, no, you don't. You do not have the authority over me or anything else. In other words, Pilate's saying, work with me here. I know I had to torture you, but I did it for your good. I tortured you to get you released. I did that to pacify. He doesn't say this. This is what we can infer about understanding how he was thinking. This was, I did this to get you released. Now work with me. Talk to me. Let's, let's work together. Let's be two uh, like-minded men, and we can come up with a plan. Go back outside, talk to chief priest. I can convince them that everything, Jesus won't speak. At least at that point he didn't. And he says, do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? After he says, you're not speaking to me. And Jesus does speak in verse 11. Look at your Bibles. Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Jesus' answer here was just as shocking and fear-inducing as the thought that he might be God's son. Of course, we know it's not that he might be. He is, but Pilate doesn't know that at that time. He's still wrestling with, is he really divine? Is this really incarnate? God come down in human flesh as the son of God? Is there, is there accusation of blasphemy legitimate? Could there really be? a son of God, all of these things. Pilate's not Jewish. He's not a follower of this faith, but he's reasoning in his mind about all these things. And Jesus informs Pilate, he doesn't say, yes, I'm the son of God, but you can infer that he is that and more because he says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above, and that the above is his father. Every power, Pilate, you have has been given to you. And it's on a brief loan, isn't it? By the way, every breath you and I have has been given us, and it's a brief loan, isn't it? Those of you that are older in age, you now realize that that loan goes fast, doesn't it? But Pilate's not using his loan wisely, the loan of life that he's been given and the power he's been given, instead of using it to release Jesus... Now, I, Jesus still would have ended up on the cross because, but Pilate wouldn't have been the one to do it. Somebody else would have made it happen. But instead of using his power wisely, 
he acquiesces and he turns Jesus over to the very sentence that Caiaphas and them have recommended. But Jesus says, don't worry. Well, not that, didn't say that, but they, have a, they even have a greater sin than yours because they delivered me to you. And by the way, that's a good reminder. Jesus says that they have the greater sin. Anyone ever says, you, sometimes you'll see people that really know nothing about the Bible say, all sins are the same. No, they're not. Some sins are greater than other sins. There's going to be levels of punishment in hell, and there'll be levels of reward in heaven. We don't put people to death for stealing a Kit Kat. We do put people to death, or we should be putting people to death, that kill other people. Amen? We've got a couple of high-profile ones in our country, and if they found to be guilty, they should give blood for blood. They, they should forfeit their life. You murder another person, some sins are greater than others. It's one thing to murder the Son of God. It's another thing, Caiaphas and them, they planned the whole thing. They architected the whole thing. So Jesus says, they have a deeper guilt. Pilate, you got this landed in your lap, and you're making the wrong decision, and you're going to be very guilty for your decision, but they have an even greater guilt because they've been, they've been scheming. They've been premeditating is the term we use in our court system, right? They've been premeditating this for months and months and months. They have a greater guilt. So not all sins are equal, but any sin can keep you out of heaven if you're not saved by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Any sin, a little white lie can keep you out because you don't have to tell a lie to prove you're a sinner. You're born a sinner, so therefore you will tell a lie. Not the lie that made you unsaved. It's the fact that the lie revealed that you were unsaved. So any sin can keep us out of heaven, but not all sins are the same. And so people, like if you are a mafia boss, and you ordered 42 deaths in your lifetime, and you never came to Christ, you will suffer even greater. Hitler's going to suffer a lot. But any sin is enough, and the greatest sin is what? Rejecting Christ. All bonus material there. So back to verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. At this point, Pilate does everything he can to get Jesus released, but nothing he says works. Then Caiaphas and his scribes, uh, they voice what they've been aiming at along, all along, uh, that being Pilate's reputation among Rome, and they know that Pilate loves the power and position he's come to hold. They know he wants to keep the power and position he wants to hold. If he has to lie, if he has to uh, kill an innocent man, whatever it takes, he, they know that that's a gravitational pull on him. Pilate, by the way, was married to one of Caesar Augustus's granddaughters, so uh, it meant a lot to him how he stood in the Roman aristocracy. He was married to one of Caesar Augustus's granddaughters. The current emperor was Tiberius Caesar, which is what uh, Philip the Tetrarch, I'm sorry, Herod Antipas, named Tiberius after Tiberius Caesar, but Tiberius Caesar was the current Caesar at the time, the current emperor at the time the Roman Empire, over the Roman Empire when Jesus is standing before Pilate. And they refer back to Roman law to force Pilate to decide, look, you, you, this man is against Caesar 
And if you want to be Caesar's friend, and if this man says he's a king, Roman law says there's only one king, one emperor, and that is Caesar. And if this man says he's a king, that means he's opposing Caesar. They have gone to their law, back to Roman law. Their law, back to Roman law. They'll ping pong with Pilate all day long on the law. And they refer back to Roman law and say, you're not Caesar's friend, and that therefore you would be guilty and uh, so Pilate has to decide, is it Jesus' innocence or my luxurious lifestyle and the power I've accumulated? Verses 13 through 16 to wrap this up. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, they said, whoever makes himself uh, a king speaks against Caesar. That was Roman law. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and he sat down in the judgment seat. He's finally ready to make his decision. When he sits in the judgment seat, this means a verdict is going to be given he sits down the judgment seat at a place uh, called the pavement, um, right, up on, right there. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll see where the road is right there. In Hebrew, Gabbatha, now it was the preparation day for the Passover at about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king, not his king, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, crucify him. Then Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? He tries one more time to implore implore them to, you know, maybe, again, they have the Barabbas option there, but now the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. They didn't like Caesar, but all of a sudden they act like they do. Then he delivered, them to be delivered him to them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. Pilate realizes that nothing's going to change their mind. He strings this out as long as he possibly can. Matthew tells us that he even declares Jesus to be just as he gives the approval for the crucifixion. You guys are probably familiar with this passage in Matthew chapter 27. Even unsaved people know, I've washed my hands of it. Anyone that ever says this, say, oh, I didn't know you were a Bible scholar. Now when you say, hear someone say that, say, oh, you read the Bible. What are you talking about? I washed my hands of this. Oh, you're, you're following Caesar's path. That's not a great path to follow. But Caesar said, and he took water and washed it, washed his hands in, in the multitude, and before the multitude, Matthew 27, 24, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Pilate's like, y'all are to blame. This has nothing to do with me. I'm just giving the approval, but it's not really my intent. This is your crucifixion. He says he's innocent of the blood of this just person, but I got news, Pilate's not innocent. He's no more innocent than Nazi soldiers said, we're just following orders, right? This was his decision. This is where he sided. He sided with Rome. He sided with Caiaphas. He sided with his own flesh. He sided with his power. He sided with his position. But tries to say, and then, you know, people try and do this today. I'm not going to come to God, but I'm going to do a couple of good things to show I'm innocent. doesn't work. It's fig leaves. Pilate has ultimately chosen to join and approve the most vile and corrupt sentence in all of history. But it's, it's interesting that you have four main characters that align against Jesus. And look what Spurgeon notes that I think is a very keen insight. He says, certain of the old writers, now he, he didn't come up with this because actually writers of the, some of the fathers in the faith wrote of these things. Certain of the old writers delight to remark that just as there were four evangelists who do honor to the Lord, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
So there are four judges to do him shame, Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod. Herod killed John the Baptist, Pilate kills Jesus, Annas and Caiaphas, they both condemn him. You have four witnesses to their own guilt and four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are witnesses to the glory of Jesus. But Jesus, as we bring this to a close, long before time, long before this Passover week, Jesus had decided in the will of the Father, with the unity of his Father, in his indescribable love for you and me, to come and give his life, not to be sentenced, but to give his life. Of course, there was a sentence, but he was going to give it. And it tells us in Luke 9.53, it's on the screen, his face was set for the journey of Jerusalem. His face was set for the journey of Jerusalem from Bethlehem, from the manger. Even before all that, his face was set to Jerusalem. It was always set on going to the cross. He would have forgiven Judas. He would have forgiven Pilate. He would have forgiven Caiaphas. Amen? If they were willing to repent, none of those guys were willing, as best we can tell from the Scriptures. They all had a decision to make. Jesus' decision was made in eternity path. You and I have a decision. I made my decision to follow Christ in 1995, and here's what I'm continuing to decide. I am going to continue. I don't know about you guys. I will continue to follow Jesus, no turning back. Amen? Amen. And that's my prayer for all of us, that we say, Lord, you've given your life for us. Why would we do anything other than give our lives fully to you? our Savior, our King? Are you following Jesus? Are you deciding to follow Jesus? No one can make that decision for you. Pilate couldn't defer the decision. It had to be his. You and I have to have our own decision. Are we going to follow ourselves, this world, or Jesus? Let's close in prayer. Father, we come again before you. We're so thankful that your Son, Jesus, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, came and lived a sinless life. His face set to the cross, his face set to Jerusalem. And Lord, never wavered for a second, but willingly laid down his life. A lamb led to the slaughter. And Lord, we're thankful that you give us enough truth to make the right decision. We're thankful that Peter chose to follow you. We're thankful that John chose to follow you. I'm thankful for every brother and sister in this room and those watching online who have chosen to follow you. But Lord, if there's even one person here that's still like Pilate, wrestling, is Jesus really the Son of God? Do I really need to be saved? Do I really need to repent and turn from my sins? I pray that even today would be that day that they would come to the wisest decision a person could ever make and to say yes to you. And with our heads bowed before we close in worship, there's even one person here or online. I, I can't see online, but I know we've got people watching online. If there's even one, raise your hand. I want to pray with you. If there's someone say, I, God spoke to me. I've been wrestling with this decision for months or weeks or years, and I want to give my life to Jesus today. Yes, he'll forgive you no matter what you've done. You could have murders, violence, manipulation, stealing, whatever. It doesn't matter. God will forgive anything. His death on the cross can cover any sin. Anyone at all, just raise your hand 
And raising your hand doesn't save you. It has to be a prayer of faith in your heart and a turning to him. But it, I just didn't want to not throw out the life preserver, if you will. If you're online, just stop and pray. Say, Lord, I surrender myself to you. I need you. Wash me. Cleanse me. Forgive me, for I'm deciding this day to follow you, Jesus. Come into my heart and save me and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Write my name on the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen. And if you've done that, just send us a note at questions at calvarychapelrva.com. We'd love to hear from you. And those of you that are here at the service ends, we'll have some folks up here in the prayer corner. If there's anything you need prayer for or even discuss any of these things, as D.L. Moody had the inquiry room after service, uh, we actually will have guys moving tables and stuff, but if you need uh, to talk or anything like that, we'll have some folks in the corner. Why don't you stand as we close and worship?